Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Today, we're going to talk about all things SCOTUS. The end of the Supreme Court term is often when the high impact and controversial cases come down typically because the justices are working to craft opinions in order to keep their majority. This summer was no different. We, of course, had the decision in the important workplace fairness case, but we had many others, including an important decision on the president's attempt to end the DACA program, which could have resulted in the possible deportation for participants. The court also decided cases that will have an impact on efforts to combat the global spread of HIV AIDS, and the court issued an opinion that broadens the free exercise clause once again in ways that force states to fund religious education. Finally, the court issued an opinion in an important abortion case and another in a contraceptive case. We are here to talk about all of these And with us is New York Law School professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. Hi, Art. How are you doing? Okay. How are you, Eric? I'm doing great. This is a daunting list of relevant Supreme... I mean, these are just some of the biggest, but there are... And you didn't mention one of them that we're going to talk about. <laughs> Our, Lady, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Remember Our her? Our Lady of Guadalupe. Well, that's kind of why I inserted that catch-all and more. I knew you would have some on our list that we weren't getting to. Um, and And so let's dig right in. I mean... I thought we would talk about, our listeners are pretty familiar with the Title VII decision. We've talked about the facts, the ruling many times, what it does, um, including on our Breaking SCOTUS Day podcast. So we aren't going to go into the facts uh, and the ruling here, except to say that it was a landmark decision by the Supreme Court where they ruled six to three that LGBT people are protected from workplace discrimination under Title VII's prohibition against discrimination based on sex. Um, But let's take a broader view of the impact of this ruling like you do in uh, law notes for us. Because for example, the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock has already been applied by the Eighth Circuit where they reversed a lower court ruling where they had once barred a healthcare worker from um, recovering under Title VII. So can you talk about how this case is already playing out and what we can expect? Okay, in the uh, July issue of Law Notes, uh, just cases decided in the last few weeks of June after this opinion came out, which was on June 15th, uh, we've several cases uh, where there were motions to dismiss or motions for summary judgment on hold while the judges were waiting. Uh, these were trial judges, district court judges uh, in Title VII cases. And of course, they all took note of Bostock and they all said, no, we're not going to dismiss your Title VII claim, even though it was a sexual orientation or gender identity case. But the more significant development uh, is Title VII, of course, doesn't apply to small employers. It doesn't employ, which are defined in the statute as employers with fewer than 15 employees. That's left up to the states. Uh, of course, the states can cover all size businesses, but uh, Title VII can't. So it's important as to whether state courts are going to pick up on this and use the same uh, reasoning that Justice Gorsuch used in Bostock to interpret their state laws. And we've got one positive signal on that. 
uh, just a week after the Bostock decision, there was a ruling by the Ohio Court of Appeals in a pending case that a gay plaintiff could sue for sexual orientation discrimination under Ohio's law, even though Ohio does not expressly cover it. Because they said, Ohio's Supreme Court has said in the past that in interpreting the state human rights law, they will follow Title VII precedents. So the Ohio Court of Appeals said, uh, without any new instructions to the, to the contrary by the Ohio Supreme Court, we are going to say that this plaintiff could bring a sexual orientation claim, but uh, catch 22, their factual allegations weren't sufficient to state a case. Uh, they, they didn't, you know, the pleading requirements are pretty tough in employment discrimination cases under the civil pleading standard adopted by the Supreme Court about 10, 15 years ago in the uh, Iqbal and Twombly cases. Uh, and altogether too many of these employment discrimination cases are pro se cases by plaintiffs who don't know how to plead a case. They don't know how specific they have to be uh, in terms of uh, giving enough facts so a district court can plausibly infer that it was because of their sexual orientation or gender identity that they suffered discrimination. Uh, but the Bostock case, uh, you know, and that's just in the employment sphere, we know that it's going to have an effect outside the employment sphere because the rationalization of Justice Gorsuch works with any statute that forbids discrimination because of sex, like housing, credit, health care, and so forth. Uh, so we expect the same reasoning will show up. Uh, how it will ultimately play out, whether the plaintiffs will actually win, is of course another story. Okay, let's talk about the DACA decision. On June 18th, in a 5-4 ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected the Trump administration's attempt to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program, and jeopardize the lives of 700,000 DACA recipients. This decision allows dreamers to live and work without the daily fear of deportation. This case felt like a really big win, Art, is it? Well, it's a temporary win because Trump immediately said that he's still going to try to uh, revoke DACA, although he was flooded with communications from corporations and educational institutions and others begging him to just leave it alone. Uh, but it's important to note that uh, this was an opinion by Roberts, but it was Roberts and the four Democratic appointees on the court. Uh, this is one of his crossovers, and he had a few of them in the last few weeks of, of the term where he sided with the more liberal justices. Uh, so uh, the holding that was affirmed by the lower court was that DACA violates the Administrative Procedure Act uh, in that uh, the articulation of a reason for the change, because any ch substantive change of policy by an administrative agency has to be justified. They have to go through and explain why the existing rule is no good. Uh, now, the position of the administration was Obama never had the authority to adopt DACA in the first place, that uh, he was legislating from the Oval Office. Uh, but the Supreme Court rejected that. Uh, they said, that uh, in fact, the president does have authority to set priorities in terms of enforcement uh, of immigration law and visas and things of that sort. There is a certain amount of discretion involved, but once you've established a policy, in order to change it, you have to go through the Administrative Procedure Act just as when you adopted it. 
Now, there was also a, a question whether he had to go through the Administrative Procedure Act to adopt it. And uh, there is a dispute uh, in the dissent, uh, especially uh, by uh, Justice Thomas dissented with Alito and Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh dissented. And they say that Obama never properly adopted it in the first place. But uh, the, uh, the court says that you have to have a decent justification and you have to explain what you weighed, the policy issues, the concerns, the factual concerns. And this was done in typical Trump administration fashion. The president just announced we're revoking it. And they called in the secretary of, uh, of uh, let's see, Homeland Security, who was an acting secretary, as we've usually had in this administration, because, uh, you know, Trump doesn't like to have people who are confirmed they have too much job security. So, <laughs> so he, he likes to be able to pull the strings. Right. You know, people so, are always being fired or resigning. Right. They called in the secretary who hadn't even been in the discussion about revoking it. And they sat her down and they put a paper in front of her and said, sign this. And it doesn't really go through anything. And one of the things that the court pointed out in particular that it didn't discuss was the reliance interest of all those people who enrolled under DACA and gave their addresses and their contact information and their status to the federal government, which would make it very easy to round them all up and deport them uh, if DACA was suddenly suspended. And furthermore, in reliance on the program and on the fact that once they'd registered, they were given uh, temporary uh, legal status in the United States, they went ahead, they served in the military, they went to school, they got degrees. Uh, uh, there was a significant number of healthcare workers who were vitally essential in the pandemic who would have to be deported if DACA was struck down. Yeah. Uh, and uh, furthermore, uh, we have uh, statistics from the Williams Institute, something like 40,000, estimated 40,000 of the dreamers who registered under DACA are LGBTQ. Right. So we're, we're talking about thousands and thousands of young people. These are basically people in their 20s and 30s uh, now uh, and, uh, you know, still uh, some teens. But when Trump came in, they stopped allowing new people to enroll. So at some point uh, that was ended. Uh, so uh, because, of, because they found an Administrative Procedure Act problem with the rescission, if they go back and they do it correctly under the Administrative Procedure Act, it could be done effectively. There isn't enough time for that to do that before the election. Although theoretically, Trump could try to pull it off, even if he's a lame duck between the election and January. But I don't think it's it's really possible because they should, they would really have to publish uh, their uh, proposed new rule in the Federal Register, and there has to be a comment period. Then they have to issue a final rule and publish it. And a lot of people have been saying that if Trump is not reelected. DACA is safe uh, because the incoming Democratic administration uh, would uh, certainly uh, abandon the rescission and right. reinstate the rule. Yeah, I think Art, with with as we talk about this case and and how it was um, an administrative uh, ruling, um, and we talk about even Title Seven, there are um, important legislative actions that need to happen if we want to strengthen and secure 
um, some of these programs and protections. So for example, the Equality Act, uh, which passed the House, um, which will still need to pass the House and the Senate again and be signed by a sympathetic president. And then of course, there's the American Dream and Promise Act, which would codify DACA and was passed under uh, Nancy Pelosi's house, but certainly needs Senate action and a president who's willing to sign it so that we have these protections um, more securely in place. So we, we have to remind people that uh, this election is about Congress as well as the president coming up in terms of the legislative agenda for LGBTQ rights. That's very true. All right, so why don't we go ahead and talk about um, a, another June case from the Supreme Court where they limited the First Amendment rights of U.S. companies with foreign affiliates. The case, Agency for International Development, the Alliance for Open Society International, or as most of us know, Open Society, involved organizations participating in a federally funded program to combat the spread of HIV AIDS and a requirement by the government that they adopt a policy explicitly opposing prostitution and sex trafficking. What did the court do here and why is it dangerous in the effort to combat the global spread of HIV AIDS? Okay, here's, here's the setup for this. Uh, Alliance for Open Society International, which is a George Soros funded uh, charity, uh, they applied to get federal funds under the U.S. Leadership Against HIV AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria Act of 2003, which says that any recipient, and this is to do work overseas, uh, AIDS prevention work overseas, uh, any recipient must uh, not promote prostitution or sex trafficking and must have an affirmatively stated policy against prostitution and sex trafficking. And one of the problems is uh, in working overseas, just as in working in this country, one group that it's vital to get involved in AIDS prevention work and safer sex uh, and getting testing and treatment is prostitutes. So uh, the uh, Open Society went to court and said, this violates our First Amendment rights. It's one thing to say we can't promote prostitution. Okay, we can't promote prostitution. It's another thing to say we have to have an affirmatively stated policy against prostitution. How are we going to get prostitutes co to cooperate with our program? if we're uh, supposed to be telling the government that they should be criminalizing prostitution. Uh, so uh, they litigated that to the Supreme Court. And in 2013, the Supreme Court ruled that that violated Alliance for Open Society's rights. But here's the twist. In many of the countries where they're doing work, in order to work locally, they have to have a locally incorporated non-governmental organization to receive the funding and carry out the work. And so they have affiliates in many foreign countries which have very similar name. They refer to open society in their name and they're basically set up to carry out this program but as locally incorporated affiliates. And the question is, do those affiliates also have to meet this condition of having an affirmatively anti-prostitution policy that they state publicly? And they don't want to because if they do that, same problem. They're going to have trouble working with sex workers. Uh, so Alliance went back to court and said, well, if it violates our First Amendment rights uh, to require us to articulate a particular policy position, doesn't it uh, violate our First Amendment rights 
to require our affiliates in foreign countries to articulate the position as well. And the court uh, ruled five to three with Kagan recused uh, against this argument uh, in an opinion by Justice Kavanaugh. Justice Kavanaugh said the affiliate organizations don't have First Amendment rights because they're not incorporated or based in the U.S. They're entirely overseas and uh, the U.S. Constitution only protects Americans. When it, when, when it says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, it doesn't specifically say so, but we've always interpreted to mean the freedom of speech of Americans, of people who are citizens or are legally resident in the United States. It doesn't protect anybody else. Uh, and uh, that was uh, argued in a dissent by Justice Breyer who said, well, no, that, that really isn't true. That overstates uh, the precedents, and it certainly is not a textualist reading of the First Amendment. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. It doesn't say whose freedom of speech. It just says it shouldn't make laws that do that, that abridge freedom of speech. Uh, and furthermore, they said, since uh, Alliance for Open Society can only carry out this program through local organizations and countries that require that, you're abridging their First Amendment rights by requiring their affiliates to have this policy, but that was the dissenting view. Uh, so Kavanaugh said, the First Amendment does not apply to foreign organizations, even if they are closely aligned to US organizations. So wow. this is unfortunately a narrowing of, of the First Amendment in this case. Right, uh, and it's a narrowing in this case and it will have real impacts on um, the, the ability of uh, you know NGOs to do important work to limit uh, the spread of HIV AIDS and does strengthen the government's ability to be able to um, impose its views on others with, you know, putting strings on government dollars. But at least at least we have the, uh, the 2013 opinion, which still stands, which says they can't require Alliance for Open Society International Incorporated here in the U.S. to adopt that policy. Uh, so uh, it's not a total loss in that in that regard. But yeah. uh, this, is, this is a recurring problem with Congress, that Congress uh, has a tendency to put these poison pills in some of these laws that uh, put restrictions, conditions, and mandates on, on recipients. And some of them we like. We like non-discrimination requirements by federal contractors, mm -hmm. but uh, dictating their federal contractors' political positions on uh, questions of public interest is another story. Uh, so that was an unfortunate loss. All right, that's an interesting case. Why don't we uh, go ahead and talk about um, two cases that deal with um, uh, the limits of the First Amendment. Um, in Espinosa v. Montana Department of Revenue, the Supreme Court decided that a state can be forced to underwrite religious education with taxpayer dollars. And we also want to talk about a seven to two decision where the court strengthened the ministerial exception, which broadens the ability of religious organizations to hire and fire without uh, offending federal anti-discrimination laws. So uh, let's try to talk about both of these cases. I know you're particularly concerned uh, with the ministerial exemption cases, uh, case as it applies to LGBT people. Isn't that right, Art? Well, for, since I'm a labor and employment law specialist, that's of particular interest to me since it's a discrimination case. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also very concerned about Espinoza because uh, the idea that uh, a state government can be required to fund uh, scholarships for students at religious schools is troubling. 
and and we should talk about the Espinosa case in its context. Uh, this is uh, against the state of Montana. Uh, Montana has a constitutional amendment which dates back to the 19th century. Uh, there was a whole sweep of constitutional amendments, which, as Justice Alito points out in his uh, his concurring opinion here, uh, he says it was basically an anti-Catholic amendment. There was uh, a flooding of immigrants from Eastern and, and Southern Europe, um, many, many, many Catholic immigrants coming in. There was real concern by the white Protestant establishment in this country that uh, we would be flooded with Catholic immigrants and then they would demand taxpayer money to pay for their parochial schools. Uh, and so these state constitutions, many state constitutions were amended to say that no, the state shall not spend any money on subsidizing religion in any way, supporting churches, supporting religious schools, etc. And Montana has one of those amendments. So uh, a few years back, uh, as part of the school choice movement, Montana got on on uh, the bandwagon for uh, setting up a way for the state to assist parents who wanted to send their children to private schools. Uh, so children could apply for scholarship, or the parents on their behalf would apply for scholarships to pay tuition to private schools. And the private school had to meet certain qualifications in terms of curriculum and so forth. But any private school, that is any school not operated by the government, which met these curricular requirements uh, could qualify uh, for the student to get the scholarship to go to that school. They didn't specify whether the school was religious or non-religious, but the overwhelming majority of people who applied for scholarship assistance was for religious schools. There aren't a lot of like fancy private schools in Montana that aren't religious schools, but there are parochial schools. There are mainly Catholic schools. And uh, in this case, the Espinosas, uh, there were actually several plaintiffs, but the Espinosas were the lead plaintiffs. Their child was qualified for scholarship. They wanted to send uh, their child to a religious school, and they were told by the state, you can't. Uh, in fact, uh, the uh, State Department of Revenue had adopted a rule stating that the scholarships that were issued under this program could not be spent at, at religious schools, even though the uh, school choice law that the legislature passed didn't specify that. Uh, it said that uh, the program shall be run consistent with the requirements of the state constitution. So that was the basis for the agency to adopt that rule. But what happened here in a five to four party line vote, Justice Roberts writing for himself and the conservative members of the court, uh, he said that's discriminating against religion. You can't have a rule that uh, you have a scholarship program to help uh, pay for private school tuition and then say, oh, but if the private school is religious, they're excluded. If you have a across the board general program, you can't exclude any participant because of religion. That violates the free exercise clause. No discussion whatsoever about any establishment clause issues here. Right. It seems they weren't, uh, they weren't argued, but this is, this is, a, this is new. And there were two past, uh, precedents of the court that could apply to this case. One was a case where the court rejected a First Amendment challenge to a requirement in the state scholarship program that scholarships not be used to study for, to become a, a clergy person, a minister or a rabbi or whatever, yeah. right? So no state money to pay for someone to become a religious, uh, a religious efficient, uh, 
however you would characterize that, a minister. Uh, and the Supreme Court said that that exclusion doesn't violate the First Amendment. But there was this other case, and this is one of Robert's favorites because he wrote this one. Uh, this was a case where uh, the state had a program uh, to uh, provide, uh, I think it was recycled rubber at cut rates for repaving Playgrounds. Uh, playgrounds and uh, religious school applied and they turned them down on the grounds that they weren't allowed to subsidize religion. And Rogers, uh, Robert said, well, that's discriminating on the basis of religion, that, that uh, this is not money that's going to be used for religious education or anything like that. It's just going to be used for some infrastructure improvement at the school. Uh, and so the court, uh, they sort of tore a little hole in the establishment clause there by saying, yes, the money can go to a religious school, but it's for paving. It's not for instruction. Right. Anytime right. you step on a playground's paving, I think of this case. <laughs> you know, that kind of spongy. Yeah. Playground Smurfs. Material. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, all right. So which of those precedents applies here? Robert says the paving precedent applies here because this is a general assistance program and you can't carve out religious groups just because they're religious groups. But in the dissenting opinion, uh, and, and well, there were dissents by Ginsburg and Breyer and Sotomayor and Kagan joined two of the dissents, but, but the point that was made over and over by the dissents is that case about the exclusion of scholarships to study for the ministry, that's the relevant one here because the whole idea of a religious school is that they do religious education. So if you're giving someone a scholarship to go to a religious school, you're paying for them to study religion and we've already held in that prior case that uh, there's a First Amendment problem with that under the Establishment Clause and that it doesn't violate the Free Exercise Clause to refuse to pay that. So, I mean, this is, this is a mission that the conservative majority of the Supreme Court is on to broaden the Free Exercise Clause and diminish the Establishment Clause. And this case is important for us because of a case that's being argued next, next fall beginning of the new term, the Fulton versus City of Philadelphia case, uh, involving whether a city can cut off a social services agency for participation in their foster care program because, based on religion, the agency, which is Catholic Social Services in the City of Philadelphia, will not deal with same-sex couples who want to be foster parents. Uh, yeah, and the city, the city cut them off. And yeah. uh, so we're really watching that one. That's right. important. And, and, and of course, the result of this case is that a lot of government dollars are going to be diverted from public to private schools. And as you said, the overwhelming majority of these private schools are religious. Right. But another point to make, and in, in introducing this case, you talked about that the court said that uh, state governments will be forced to subsidize religious schools through the scholarship program. Well, the answer is they don't have to have a scholarship program. And in fact, uh, there are many people who argue that these scholarship programs that some states have set up are very dangerous to public education in this country because they're diverting state funds, taxpayer funds to private schools. And why should taxpayers be subsidizing private schools when we have a system of public education in this country, which is already underfunded and yeah. inadequately supported. So, uh, and in fact, the, the funny thing about this case, there, there was an argument for this case being moot in a certain sense because uh, in response to the lower court decision holding that this, uh, that this rule was valid and that the state constitutional amendment prevailed, basically the state backed down and they got rid of the program <laughs> because yeah. the state Supreme Court said the program was, uh, 
was uh, violated the state constitution by funneling money to religious schools. Um, so, uh, so we you know, may there it is. see even more policy uh, actions taken as a result of this ruling in, in states that don't want to divert taxpayer money uh, to private schools by ending programs like this? Well, one could hope. <laughs> okay, so tell us about um, the 72 decision involving the ministerial exemption and okay. uh, and why we should be scared. Yeah, okay. Now, I've, I've also slipped back and forth between calling it the ministerial exemption or the ministerial exception. The court uses the language of exceptionalism rather than exemptionalism in this case. <laughs> so, uh, our Lady of Guadalupe School and another school, I believe St. James, uh, two Catholic schools in the Archdiocese, the Diocese of Los Angeles. And in both schools, there was a teacher who uh, claimed that they'd been discriminated against when their contract was not renewed. One of them claimed she was replaced by a significantly younger teacher. They got rid of her because of her age. She brought an action under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, federal statute. And the other one was a teacher who was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she was fired and she brought an action under the Americans with Disabilities Act. The Americans with Disabilities Act specifically says that religious organizations uh, can make decisions consistent with their religion. If they have a religious reason uh, for, for not hiring somebody, they're off the hook. Uh, and Title VII has that as well. Uh, Title VII says that religious organizations, and they include uh, religious schools, Religious organizations can take religion into account and can make hiring and, and retention decisions based on someone's religion. Uh, that uh, They're not going to interfere with that as a matter of free exercise. But what about people who are not priests, people who are not clergy, people who are not hired to do religious work as such, or at least that's not their principal thing? In, in this, these two cases, they were elementary school teachers. And the diocese defended both cases by arguing that the ministerial exception, which the court had recognized eight years ago in the Hosanna Tabor case, which involved a Lutheran school and a teacher who had been called to the ministry and who had done advanced study in religion and everything. And although she was not a religious teacher, a religion teacher as such, uh, she uh, was required to uh, lead prayer services and things of that sort. So the school, the Supreme Court said in that case, they have a right under the First Amendment to decide whether they want to reinstate her. She had gone off on a medical leave, and they just refused to reinstate her. Uh, and the court said uh, the First Amendment free exercise clause would be violated by interfering with uh, the religious school's decision uh, to dismiss someone who clearly falls within the ministerial exception that lower courts have recognized in cases involving clergy. All right. In this case, we have elementary school teachers. So what do they teach? They teach arithmetic, reading, social studies, you know, this the normal gamut of things you do in fourth grade or you know second grade or whatever. Do they teach religion? Well, there is a religious unit. After all, it's a religious school and they do have to give little religion uh, uh, stuff that they do out of a book. None of them are called, none of them are priests. Uh, I mean, you, you look back at, uh, at Catholic high schools uh, where you did have nuns and priests teaching in Catholic high schools. But in the elementary schools, um, these were lay teachers. Uh, but they were teaching religion. So it's a close call there. Uh, the district court said that the ministerial exception applied here and granted motions to dismiss both cases. They went up to the Ninth Circuit, which reversed. The Ninth Circuit, applying the Hosanna Tabor precedent, 
said, we don't think these elementary school teachers who had only a tiny portion of their week devoted to teaching religious lessons out of an assigned book. They didn't have advanced study in religion. They weren't recognized as ministers and so forth. They don't fall within the Hosanna Tabor precedent. Well, the Supreme Court reverses seven to two. And Justice Alito, writing for the court, uh, Alito is probably the strongest advocate of free exercise uh, and the strongest opponent of the Establishment Clause that you can find on the court. So not surprising Roberts assigned him this one to write. Uh, so Alito says that the Ninth Circuit and various lower courts have been misconstruing Hosanna Tabor. He said, we look at what the teacher does. Was the teacher hired, at least in part, to teach religion? If they were, then they come into the exception. Then they're not covered, which means they can be discriminated against on any ground that the school wants. Race, color, religion, sex, national origin, any. They're just exempt. That's what the exception is. They are not covered, which means that uh, on June 15th in Bostock, we got protection under Title VII. And on July 8th in Our Lady of Guadalupe, it was taken away from all LGBTQ people who teach religion, whose job is involved in teaching religion or performing any kind of religious function. They're probably in the expanded version of the ministerial exception that we see in this case. And this is significant, even though these cases didn't involve LGBTQ people, as far as we know, that wasn't the basis. Uh, we've had lots of cases around the country uh, with employees of Catholic schools who were known to be gay by their principals, were known to be gay by their, by their co-workers. They weren't like overtly out necessarily on the job in, in terms of students. They were known to be gay, no big deal. Then the Obergefell decision comes along and they get married and there's a notice in the paper or someone, a parent of a student sees it somehow or learns about it and they report it back and all of a sudden they get fired. You know, this is the old story uh, that we used to argue in the Title VII cases where we were arguing in the lower courts that we should be covered. We said, now with Obergefell, we can get married on Sunday and fired on Monday and we're not protected. Well, here it is. And we've got cases, especially in Indianapolis. We have a whole bunch of cases against the uh, Diocese of Indiana, of Indianapolis, of uh, people, guidance counselors. You know, uh, one of the issues here is the court did not give a bright line test necessarily. And so in any given case, if it can be proven that the employee of the religious institution, whether it's a school or a hospital or whatever it is, was not hired to teach religion or to perform religious functions, then they're not within the ministerial exception. But uh, an awful lot of these people are. I mean, for example, gay church organists. Uh, I, I can tell you my uh, college roommate was an organ major in the music department at Cornell. And he told me most of the organ students are gay. And he said, if you go to an American Guild of Organists annual meeting where all of the uh, church organists from the country come, he said, it's like a gay convention. So, you know, it's a profession that attracts a lot of gay people. And one of the earliest cases involving uh, a forerunner of the ministerial exception was from San Francisco way back in the 1970s when the city's uh, gay rights law was very new and uh, the local uh, local Episcopal 
uh, fundamentalist Episcopal church, they discovered that their church organist was gay and they fired him. And he brought one of the early claims under the San Francisco law. And the superior court said, no, no, you can't sue. Uh, they have persuasively argued to this organist who also directs the choir, you're part of the service leader group. You are leading services. You're not just sitting there playing the organ. You're, you're helping them choose the music. Uh, you're providing a religious function. Uh, they have a, an absolute right under the First Amendment to decide who they want to have doing that work. So this exceptionalism goes way back. Uh, how far it will stretch, we don't know, but uh, this this decision, uh, I think, broadens the ministerial exception as it was described in Hosanna Tabor. Alito says it's just a, straight a straightforward application of the precedent, but the dissenters beg to differ. Uh, so we'll see how that one plays out, but there, there are several cases pending around the country which will immediately be affected by this, in which there's going to have to be a very close scrutiny of whether the individual is under the exception and therefore can't sue. Right. And as you mentioned, we're all going to be watching and listening uh, to you uh, for our updates of next term when they argue uh, Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, because we're still wondering, as we're talking about the impact of the Bostock ruling, exactly how that comes into play with uh, religious freedom um, defenses, RIFRA, for example, um, so we'll definitely be looking at the scope and impact of that ruling and having cases decided by the Supreme Court and the lower federal courts on this very issue and its scope for, for some years to come. All right, well, let's pivot from this to talk about our last duo of cases, which involve access to contraception and abortion. So uh, the first we'll talk about is a 5-4 vote. Uh, by the Supreme Court that struck down a Louisiana law that required doctors performing clinic abortions to have admitting privileges to a nearby hospital. This is a Louisiana law that was virtually identical to the Texas law that was passed um, in, and was at issue in Whole Woman's Health. Uh, which was a case decided four years ago and authored by Justice Kennedy. And of course, the only difference now is we have Trump justices on the court. So I think conservatives were hoping for a different outcome uh, in this particular case, but the Chief Justice joined with the left-leaning justices and somewhat of a surprise, right, Art? Yeah, because he was at the center in, in uh, Whole Woman's Health. And he... Uh... He actually, he, he lent his vote in this case. I mean, it's a five to four because uh, there was a plurality opinion for the court, which said this poses an undue burden on women, et cetera, et cetera. So it flunks uh, the test, uh, the Casey test that we've been applying uh, to uh, state abortion restrictions since the early 1990s. Uh, but, uh, you know, conservatives were hoping that the retirement of Justice Kennedy and his replacement with Justice Kavanaugh would switch it over and they'd go five to four the other way and it would uphold this Louisiana law. But I think, you know, this is this is part of Robert's institutionalism, his his view that he, they, he, they must communicate to the public that this is a court, not a political body. And the change of one member shouldn't result in a different outcome in a case that was decided just a few years ago. Uh, so he concurred on the ground of stare decisis and precedent. He said, 
if just a few years ago we struck down as unconstitutional the virtually identical law in the state of Texas, how can this suddenly become constitutional just because the judge who wrote the opinion retired and someone else was appointed to take his place? I can't let that happen. So I'm going to vote to strike down the law based not on the substance because his, his views and his dissent are clear. He doesn't think that uh, imposes an undue burden or at least that the state has a sufficient justification in terms of protecting the health of the mother and the fetus to have admitting privileges. Oh, that's been shown to be totally spurious. Uh, if there's a problem with, uh, with an abortion that requires hospitalization, no hospital is going to turn them down. They come to the emergency room with an emergency just because the doctor who was performing the abortion at the clinic doesn't have admitting privilege at the hospital. The hospital has its own staff. They will provide services. Uh, so it's it's totally spurious, and the number of cases in which it's required to rush someone in an emergency, so, minuscule, uh, minuscule. Uh, so, but this is important that that Roberts crossed over, and one can hope that if the uh, the the campaign by the anti-choice people to get a really broad abortion description uh, prohibition up before the Supreme Court comes up there that Roberts will cross sides to uphold Casey, although Casey's a lot older and much more contested. But so, so much, you know, rides on it. But also another, another of our uh, wins that we want to protect very strongly is Obergefell versus Hodges. And, you know, that was a five to four. That was an opinion by Kennedy. Uh, Roberts was a dissenter in that case. Is there a possibility if because we have several other states that are trying to do it. They're trying to figure out ways to avoid the Obergefell decision, to elude or evade the Obergefell decision, to get it back up there to the courts so the new majority can reverse it. And in fact, there's a cert petition pending out of the Seventh Circuit uh, involving uh, a, a case that could put Obergefell in issue. It's a birth, another one of these birth certificate cases uh, involving a same-sex couple and a child and whose name goes on the birth certificate. And the Seventh Circuit said Pavan versus Smith decides this, the Arkansas case from the year after Obergefell, and which said that Obergefell says you have to have absolutely equal treatment for same-sex and different-sex marriages in all legal respects, including whose name goes on the birth certificate when a child is born. Uh, so uh, there's a cert petition that was just filed in that case, the Henderson case versus Box. Uh, so that would give the conservative majority a hook to either narrow Obergefell, make exceptions to Obergefell, or even overrule it if they wanted to. Uh, as Justice Brennan famously said, you can do anything you want in this court if you can count to five. A uh, court can overrule its old precedents. Uh, so there's a real danger there. And I'm hoping that Roberts will see Obergefell as a settled question. It's been heavily relied upon. It's been heavily followed. Thousands and thousands and thousands of same-sex couples have married. Uh, and are now uh, seeking to be treated equally by the government in terms of their marriages. Uh, so perhaps he will see the reliance interests as strong enough and the importance of stare decisis is strong enough and he might cross over in such a case. And maybe and even Kavanaugh, who knows? Maybe. <laughs> we, do know where, we do know where Gorsuch stands with respect to Pavan because it was one of the first uh, cases where he was ruling on an LGBT-related issue, and he uh, was one of the dissenters in that case. I'm but not the grounds sure. of his dissent, the grounds of his dissent were 
that it wasn't totally clear that the question of the uh, birth certificates right. from Arkansas were decided by Obergefell. He thought at least we should hold oral argument on this. At least we should have yeah. merits briefing. We should As just if Justice summarily. Kennedy hadn't said all the rights and benefits that go right. along with marriage. And I don't think that the Chief Justice was one of the dissenters there, was no. he? he was right. silent. He was yeah. silent there. Uh, that was a per curiam, and so uh, there's no name on the opinion. It's just the opinion of the court, and then there's a dissent by Gorsuch with Alito and Thomas, I believe. Okay. So, uh, you know, that's that's our ministerial exemption. That's our stuff. And then the other, uh, the other abortion case uh, that's important, of course, is the Trump administration adopting a rule that basically exempts not only religious employers, because they're, they're already exempted by existing rules, but even businesses that might have religious or moral objections to providing contraception for their employees uh, under insurance policies, uh, the Trump administration has passed a rule to exempt them. Uh, and they don't even have to notify anybody. They just have to turn people down. It's the burden is on the individual to try to go and figure out a way to get coverage in that situation. Uh, because an attempt to negotiate some kind of deal there that the insurer could provide the benefit without charging uh, the premium to the employer or something, that just fell through. It couldn't be negotiated. So the Trump administration just went out and passed a rule. And uh, the question was whether the rule itself violates the statute, and the court ruled 7-2 to two that it doesn't. And the reason was that this was too hot an issue for Congress to handle when the Affordable Care Act was up for a vote. And so they punted on it. They gave discretion to the Department of Health and Human Services to basically decide what's covered within the scope of preventive health care and reproductive health care for women. And uh, the Obama administration interpreted that to mean you've got to cover contraception. You have to, they issued a, a rule that you had to provide any contraceptive that was approved by the Food and Drug Administration. It has to be covered by your insurance plan. And they only made an exemption for religious organizations. And then in the Hobby Lobby case, the court said, well, no, you have to consider uh, religious employers uh, who have businesses, who have religious objections. So that was a closely held company. Well, the Trump administration in their new rule expands on that. They said they can also have moral objections, not religious objections to providing contraceptives. And uh, furthermore, the religious exemptions apply totally to uh, uh, to all employers, not just closely held corporations, any business, but not the moral exemption. That only uh, applies to closely held businesses. Uh, it's, it's sort of hard for a big corporation with thousands of shareholders to have moral objections. You would think it would be hard for them to have religious beliefs, but here you go. Well, under Hobby Lobby, they evidently can't. But at any rate, the court, uh, and this was seven to two uh, because uh, Breyer and Kagan agreed that Congress didn't require contraception, that it was within the discretion of the agency because it was specifically delegated to them to decide uh, what's going to be covered under that. Uh, and the basis on which the lower court had said that it was invalid was they said it's required by the statute, which is wrong. And they said that all the procedural requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act had been met, even though they didn't go through many of the formal steps 
uh, they did uh, publish an interim rule and they solicited comment and then they published a final rule and the court said that's enough. Uh, but Breyer and Kagan said, but that doesn't address a separate issue, a substantive issue under the Administrative Procedure Act, whether the change in policy is justified. And remember in uh, another Administrative Procedure Act case that uh, we decided just weeks ago, the DACA case, we said you have to consider reliance interests. Well, are there any reliance interests here that should have been considered? Well, so uh, Kagan uh, suggests on remand, it's possible that the lower court could still hold that the substantive aspect of the Administrative Procedure Act was violated. So this isn't the final answer in the case. Uh, the dissent, of course, by Justice Ginsburg with Sotomayor, she says, no, Congress wanted a seamless, comprehensive coverage of women's health care in order for an insurance policy to qualify under the Affordable Care Act. And this violates Congress's goal there. Uh, but that was just for herself and Justice Sotomayor. So what does this pretend for us? Well, it's the approach of the court, once again, in dealing with Trump administration regulations that give broad play to religion and uh, that may end up excluding LGBTQ people from protection. And we have that very thing. Uh, we have uh, several lawsuits that were filed just days before the Bostock decision challenging a new Trump administration rule that transgender people are not protected from discrimination under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, so uh, those cases may be affected by the reasoning of this case. We'll have to see. And those cases may be affected by what happens in the next presidential election and the next administration, because as we know, um, administrative rules are only for now. Um, right and executive orders as well. So now that we're kind of done, we basically covered all relevant, uh, well, at least some of the very biggest highlights of the 2019, 2020 uh, Supreme Court term. Do you have any kind of big picture, uh, last thoughts about uh, what we saw from this term and its importance and where the court seems to be going and its position in, in history? Well, it seems to me that it's very important to note that Trump's two appointees, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, don't always vote on the same side of the case. That is, they're not jurisprudential twins. They are independent thinkers. They, for example, in the Bostock case, they took a very different approach to textualism and what it says under Title VII when it refers to discrimination because of sex. Gorsuch went our way, Kavanaugh went in, in the dissent, both claiming that they were flying under the flag of textualism. Alito in his dissent says it was a pirate flag. <laughs> it isn't real textualism. Uh, but uh, concurring opinion pointed out that Alito's version of textualism isn't textualism. It's relying on legislative intent, which is not textualism. Textualism relies on the text. Uh, so, so that's important. We've seen that Roberts has really emerged as a swing vote. Uh, Roberts is almost always in the majority in the five fours. I think I saw a chart that showed he was only in the minority on two five four decisions all term. All the other five to four decisions he was in the majority, sometimes with the liberals, sometimes with the conservatives. Uh, so Roberts has become less predictable than he might have been, although he was already doing some of that before. Uh, remember in the original case that upheld the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and we're going to be seeing an argument early in the term on the Trump administration's attempt to get the Affordable Care Act struck down, I think it's very possible that Roberts will, you know, cross over sides and uphold it. Uh, 
uncertain and opinion probably won't be out before the election, but the argument may be held before the election. So that may end up being a big issue. So I think, you know, we have a, a Supreme Court that is still in flux. It hasn't really settled. Uh, every time a new justice joins the court, uh, and several justices have said that over the years, every time a new justice joins the court, it's a different court. Because the old justice's voice is no longer there. The new justice's voice is there. No two people are completely alike. It changes the balance. It changes the arguments. It changes the tenor of what goes on. So it's taking some time. You know, Kavanaugh hasn't been there long enough to really trace an arc yet. Uh, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch going different ways. Next term could be very, very interesting as this court settles a little more. Uh, we all hope for a very healthy summer for Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer, the oldest members of the court. Uh, we don't want Trump making a lame duck appointment. You know, if anything happens to Ginsburg or Breyer between now and the end of December, basically, right. regardless of how the election goes, uh, we, uh, Mitch McConnell is not going to stand by his word that you don't no. confirm new We all do that at the time. I if, mean. If, if Trump nominated someone on Christmas Day, right. Mitchell would have an emergency session of the Senate. He'd call <laughs> them in and they'd confirm them before January 3. Oh, it just makes sure the Congress goes out. <laughs> so, so, you know, we've got to keep our fingers crossed. We've got to tell these people, you know, shelter in place. Maybe this is the one bright light of the pandemic. <laughs> stay in your apartment. Stay right. in your house. Don't go out. Don't risk anything. We any have damage a to Bernie situation here. <laughs> yes, we, we've got to be watching hard. All right, Art. Well, it's always a pleasure to hear your thoughtful opinions. And over Zoom, it's always a pleasure to see your face. So thank you so much for joining us again. Are we sending this Zoom out to everybody or just the audio? (laughs) (laughs) I think people would be, even though it's great to see your face, I think they'd be incredibly bored just watching our faces talk. Yes. Okay. So we'll stick to audio for the podcast. But at least I put on, you know, regular clothes and not my pajamas. So, you know, I'm ready for prime time. Thank you so much for listening to the Legal LGBT Podcast. We'll be back with a Law Notes episode in August. And in the meantime, we have some fabulous content coming your way. See you soon.